rest of you talk. Please make this work today, Lord Jesus. Thank you. It's all yours, Jeff. I don't think so either. No. Oh, okay. 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 It's all yours, Jeff. Okay, it's all yours, Don. Okay. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We're gathered together this morning that we might study your word because we know that your spirit and your word go together for indeed it is his word and he works through it. You work through it in us and we know that you work that which is pleasing in your sight. We know that the good work that you started in us, you will bring to completion. All these things we know to be true because they come from your word. So Father, as we gather today, we are expectant. We have an abiding hope that you will continue to do in us that which is pleasing to you. Father, we pray for the virtues of your spirit to manifest themselves in our lives. And Father, we pray that your hand will be upon us for good as we interact with others. Father, we also ask that you'll be with our brother Bruce. We ask that your hand would be upon him for good. We're thankful for his uh, appearance and for his update, and we pray for his health. Father, we also pray for his wife. We ask that your hand would be upon her, that you would give her your sustaining grace. Father, we're thankful for Andy and his family making it home last night. And Lord, we pray that you will continue to bless the Davises, especially as they're reunited with one another. And we pray that uh, their furniture and all that uh, is coming all of that would go smoothly and that they would transition to their new home well. Father, we ask that you'll open our eyes to the wonder and the truth of your word. Help us, Father, as we study the book of Romans, a book you've used mightily in the life of the church. And Father, we ask these things knowing that we ask them according to the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, let me, uh, let me ask that you would turn to the book of Romans, and uh, I want us to look at, at the first seven verses today, and uh, some of this is going to be by way of introduction, and so um, uh, um, let me ask that you turn there now, and I'll read the first seven verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was ascended from David according to the flesh 
and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus, to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. <clears throat> all right. Well, I think uh, an exciting day today. Uh, an exciting day because, talking about the book of Romans, I think the book of Romans is one of the most exciting books uh, in the scriptures, although in some ways everyone talks about the book of Romans and, and uh, what a meaningful book it is, and yet it's perhaps the, the book with the densest theology in it. Oftentimes people love it because it gives you know, the doctrine of original sin, it gives the doctrine of justification, it gives the doctrine of sanctification, it gives all of those things, the doctrine of perseverance, on and on and on, and it is a dense book. But it, what's interesting to me is it's not just a dense book. One of the things that just strikes me as, as very interesting is it's a book that deals with Jew and Gentile relationships, and so strikingly, it's so meaningful to us as Gentiles. And oftentimes I think that uh, it's meaningful to us as Gentiles, not because of, say, chapters 10 and 11, or chapters 15 and 16, maybe 14, 15, and 16, but it's meaningful to us because of chapters 1 through 8, and then, of course, chapter 9, because that's the revelation or the uh, predestination chapter. And maybe, maybe chapter 12 and 13, because those are the one another passages, and there's a little bit on government. But, uh, but really, the sum and substance of why we love Romans is 1 through 8. 1 through 8 is really why we visit the book of Romans as often as we do. And yet, what I want us to do is look at the entire book. I want us to help, I, I want us to appreciate why it is that we should love the book of Romans, not just the first eight chapters or maybe nine, but all of the book of Romans. And, uh, and, and I, want, I want to say some things that I think, um, that I think are, are helpful by way of getting us started. So I want to look at the introduction and ask the question, why study the book of Romans at all? Now, you may have some answers of your own, but uh, I have at least three that I want to give to you uh, before we get started in the book of Romans. I also want to give a little bit of background as well. Why study the book of Romans? Well, the first thing that I think we might say is it's the Bible, of course, right? It is. It's the scriptures. And when you think about the scriptures, any one of the books of the Bible, you, you have a tendency to think, you know, every once in a while I think to myself, this carpet feels like glue to my feet. Do you know what I'm saying to you? Can I just take a pause for a minute? I used to wander around a bit. Ever since they put this carpet down, I feel like I'm glued in one spot. I don't know why that is. I don't know if I feel like I'm going to trip or what it is, but anyway, I'm going to try to walk a minute. <laughs> okay. So it's the Bible. And, uh, and I think when we think about the Bible, we think about, uh, we think about the Bible's attributes. I think we, you know, when you think about the Bible's attributes, think of four of them. 
You think of the necessity of the scriptures. Why? Because man fell. And in the fall, general revelation was no longer sufficient to save him. You see, general revelation was never built to save sinful men. So it's necessary. The scriptures are necessary. Um, What else are they? They're authoritative. General revelation was authoritative, but so too is special revelation in the scriptures. And then thirdly, we say that scripture is perspicuous. And that's a fancy word for saying it's clear. The scriptures, in terms of the way of salvation, are clear. They're not some hidden code or some secret message. They're clear. Even a child can understand the way of salvation put forth in the scriptures. Hmm. And, uh, and when you think about the scriptures, you think of the fourth attribute, they're, ne- they're sufficient, rather. They're sufficient. And so they're sufficient to supply for man's lack, his need of salvation. They tell the way of salvation in Jesus Christ. Yeah, Don. Um, I uh, taught a uh, little um, uh, small group the other night on uh, the topic of Islam. And so I decided, well, maybe I should uh, start reading the Quran. And I'm going to tell you what, you talk about um, scripture. Uh, well, I mean, I, I would say the exact opposite applies to the Quran. Uh-huh. Very unclear, uh, disorganized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. Not not a joy to read, right? No. Yeah, no. yeah. But uh, the scripture, and and so we need to understand that Romans is all of these things. Romans is is necessary. It's it's just like the other twenty seven books of the New Testament and, and the thirty nine of the Old. Just like this, this book, we need to think of it as necessary. We need to think of it as authoritative in our lives. We need to think of it, here's the challenge, as clear. And we need to understand that it's sufficient for our need. This book is sufficient for the way of salvation, just like the other books in the Bible. But this book is sufficient. Now, I'm going to say something to you a little bit later about access points. And let me just mention this. When you guide someone to the scriptures... Anthony, or not, uh, not Anthony Perkins, what Perkins, William Perkins. William Perkins in The Art of Prophesying said that you can, for instance, access different disciplines in different ways. One of the things that, uh, that you can do uh, when you're studying philosophy, for instance, is read a general introduction to the history of philosophy. Or you can get a book on the ideas of philosophy. There are different ways, for instance, to access the discipline. You can do it historically. You can do it ideologically. You can do it from different, different ways, vantage points. The scriptures are the same. You have 66 books. How many of us would say, start with numbers? <laughs> can't imagine many of us. But we would say, and probably have, start with John. Or... Start with another book that may be our favorite. Well, William Perkins would have said, you can start with Romans. And he would have said, Romans and John are two of the best access points to Scripture to lead you into the marrow of it. If you want to understand the whole, then John and Romans are great places to start. And Romans is a great place to start. It's somewhat intimidating, I think, because it's so didactic and and so 
for some, heavy theologically. And yet it's a rich, rich book. So it's, a, it's, a, it's all of these things because it is scripture. And I think that's not a, a, something new for you guys, but it's something I think that we need to at least say. This is the Bible. Uh, the second one is God's providential use of the book. You know, one of the things that I think uh, is important, at least, maybe, well, maybe it's because I enjoy history so much. I love to read biographies. I love to read about how God has worked in the life of the church. And Romans is one of those books that God has just used in the life of the church. And I think maybe the reason for that is because of what William Perkins said. It's one of those access points into the marrow of the book of the Bible itself that God's just used this book in a rich and a full way in the history of the church. I want to I want to pause for a minute and give you some of those ways. And you'll know some of them. But for instance, uh, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart and their I don't know if you know this book, but it's, I think it's a well-worn book by now, but it's called uh, How to Read the Bible for All, of it, for All It's Worth. Uh, they say that Romans is the most influential book in Christian history. That's a pretty grand statement. Now, I don't know if you know Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart, but Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart aren't historians, but they are exegetes. In fact, each of them wrote a book on how to exegete the scriptures that's used in many seminaries. In fact, I, I had to use both of these books when I was in seminary, and, they, and they're still being used today. These guys are guys who are steeped in the scriptures and also uh, able scholars, and they, and they know a thing or two, and I think they're right. It's, it's probably the most influential book in Christian history. This was the book that was at heart and at root for Augustine, his conversion. Um, this is the book where he's seated in the garden, remember? And uh, he hears the voice, the voice of a child, take up and read. And this is after a long pilgrimage through Manichaeism and Neoplatonism and all of these isms. And he arrives in this garden. He's been, uh, he's been listening to preaching but he's sitting there in the garden, and this is what he hears. Now, one of the things that you have to understand is that uh, Augustine had lived a, a life of licentiousness. He, he had been an immoral man. He had a child out of wedlock. He wasn't married uh, to the mother of his son. He would, uh, he would move to these places. She would follow him to those places. He eventually, when he joins the church, um, does not marry her. Uh, and so on. So it's you know he has a, a very a very checkered background by the time he comes to Christianity, and he's he's the kind of guy who basically says, and this is his prayer in his confessions: "Lord, save me, but not yet." And the and the uh, uh, you know he was enjoying his the he was enjoying his sinful lifestyle, the lust of the flesh. Well, he's in this garden, and he hears this voice say. Toli lege, and uh, take up and read. And here's what he turns to and reads. Now, knowing what I just said, listen to this. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's what it... 
That's what he read in the garden that day when he heard those words, take up and read. And he said his life was changed. And his life was changed through the book, through reading these words in Romans. You know, it's the spirit and the word working together. And his life was changed, altered forever. And not just his, but the Christian churches because of the influence that he's had. Um, How about Martin Luther? Martin Luther would say that his conversion had to do with his reading Romans. Reading Romans in a different way than he had read it previously, and we'll talk about, we'll talk when we get to Romans 6, 116 uh, and 17, we'll talk a little bit about, about uh, Luther and the horns of the dilemma he was on. I, I want to bring some background in about Luther because I think when you do, you, you realize that the Reformation was really a reformation in his understanding of Scripture, uh, in his understanding of, of the doctrine of God, really. But Romans 1.16 is, uh, is really a powerful uh, text in uh, Luther's life. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, um, I want to just... I, I, will, I think I will say a couple of things now about this. Um, Luther is really on the horns of a dilemma. And the horns of, the, of, a dilemma that, of the dilemma that he's on is this. Um, basically, you have the nominalists. And nominalism, and I'll just say this now. I, I won't, we won't, we won't uh, make a, a big deal out of this now. And nominalism, and you have, uh, on the one hand, you have Neo-Augustinianism, which is, in some ways, a mysticism. Now, this nominalism basically said there's, there's a difference between the, um, the naked sovereignty of God and the covenantal sovereignty of God. Okay? Now, the naked sovereignty of God means that God can do absolutely anything he wants. And that, and that can even trend in a direction that, that would indicate that God could perhaps take on different attributes. Um, he's that free. In other words, he's covenanted to be merciful to us and just and so on. But the covenantal power of God is leashing the naked sovereignty of God. So the only, st- the only thing that stands between us and the naked sovereignty of God to do absolutely anything he wants is the covenantal leash that God has put on himself, right? But, but the fact of the matter is, if you're a Luther, you're going, if God had enough power to put that covenantal leash upon himself and to restrain himself, then can't he take that leash off, right? And so he's always worried. And what, one of the things that he's worried about is he's worried about the way in which the nominalists have taught about salvation. In fact, some of the old nominalists grew out of some of the medievalists who taught that God, God's demands in terms of God's covenant of leash, what does God require of me? This is what God... This is what God says he'll do, but what does God require of me? Well, God requires of me 
what was called fakientibus, or offering my best. I, I think the spelling of that is F-A- I think it's F-A-C-I-E-N-T-I-B-U-S, I think, Don, but I'll have okay. to check the spelling. Yeah, Does that look right? Okay. What's that? Yeah, one word. One word. One, okay. That, that must be German, right? It's Latin. <laughs> oh, and Martin Luther saying that about, about what does God require of him. No. So the Latinists, the neo, oh, the, Latins, the, the nominalists, were saying the that God puts his covenant leash on him, but our part of the covenant is to offer fakientibus. And the fakientibus is to offer our best. He's not saying a dirty word, is he? <laughs> Don, delete that from the manuscript. <laughs> so, so if God, here, here's God's, uh, covenantal leash on him. This is what he says he'll do for me. Uh, he'll reward me if I do what? If I offer my very best. Well, you can understand the dilemma now that Luther's under because the question he's asking is, well, what's my very best? And, and this is, it's out of this nominalism that Luther's concerns about have I confessed enough? Have I... Have I done enough? Grow. And, uh, and he would go to von Staupitz, his advisor, his spiritual advisor, and his spiritual advisor would tell him, basically, let go and let God. He was a mystic. He would say to him, just kind of, Martin, just relax, you know. Uh, in, in fact, in some ways, he was close to being uh, what we might call a, um, uh, an antinomian. Don't worry about the law at all. Just sort of give yourself over to God and let him worry about it. And, uh, and so von Staupitz was telling him, look, Martin, it's, it's by this mystical grace. And others were saying, no, 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 no. It's do your best. And you can see why Luther's going nuts. He's conscientious. He comes and he confesses everything. Von Staupitz says, Martin Luther, if you're going to confess something, bring me back a good sin, right? Uh, <laughs> stop bringing me back these peccadilloes. And that's the, the dilemma he's on. Now, he reads Romans 1.16 and he sees righteousness not now as what God's going to do to me if I don't offer my best, but he sees righteousness as the righteousness that God gives to me freely in Jesus Christ. And when he understands that, this is what he says. He says, I felt that I had been born anew and that the gates of heaven had been opened. The whole of Scripture gained a new meaning. And from that point on, the phrase, the justice of God, or the righteousness of God, no longer filled me with hatred, but rather became unspeakable sweet by virtue of a great love. His new understanding of God's righteousness, not as God's justice for, not, for him not offering his best, but now righteousness was something God gives, imputes by the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he understood that, things changed for Martin Luther. We'll talk about that. Uh, we'll talk about that not from Luther's vantage point, but we'll talk about that from the perspective of Romans itself. In other words, let me ask this, and I won't answer it now because we're not to 116 yet. But the question that we need to ask is this. Is that what 116 really says? Is, is Luther a good exegete at this point? Or do we have to wait till we get further in the book of Romans to find out that righteousness is something that God gives? 
In other words, is this an attribute of God that is descriptive of God, or is it something that God gives to us? At least in Romans 1.16 and 17. We'll have to wait and find out, but it's, a, it's an interesting question. But you can see how Romans 1, 16 and 17 was clearly bound up in the life of Martin Luther in terms of his conversion, but not just him. Uh, Robert Haldane wrote a commentary on the book of Romans. He visited Switzerland in 1816, and he basically started to lead a Bible study. And the Bible study that he started to lead was on Romans. And, uh, and it started a, a revival in Germany amongst these students. And in fact, uh, uh, the, the Bible studies become the commentary on Romans. And there were some significant people who were saved out of that Bible study that became famous writers and so forth uh, in, at that time in history. And I think one of the guys was... Uh, Bishop, am I pronounced, Latourette, the historian, um, was one of those guys that uh, came out of that Bible study. So um, really fascinating, but the, the Banner of Truth still publishes that, that work today. It's, it's Romans. Um, John Wesley? Is that the full name of it, Jeff? I think it's Romans, and I, I think there's just a, I think it's the Geneva series from the Banner of Truth. Uh, John Wesley? Um, Goes to, uh, he basically goes to a, a Moravian meeting uh, on Ottergate Street, I think is, is the, uh, the name of the street. This is a well-known story. There's going to be a reading from the prep from Martin Luther's preface to the Romans. And uh, it's at that meeting that Wesley says the Lord moved in his heart. So um, uh, just a fascinating, uh, fascinating thing. John Calvin says this. He says, when anyone understands this epistle, he has a sure road open to him to understanding of, to the understanding of the whole of the scriptures. Again, he's following William Perkins, I think, in this. Uh, and William Perkins says, you know, that uh, uh, in the art of prophesying that um, basically uh, John and Romans are two of the great access points of scripture. So uh, one of the things that you find is that uh, you're still recording. Say, so just wanted to let you know. Oh, uh, so one of the things that you find is that this book is is well used by God in the history of the church uh, to do some significant things. When you think about it, uh, in the life of Augustine, who makes such an influence, in the life of Luther, who who uh, is the really the fire, the beginning of the Reformation. John Calvin uh, talks to us about it, but uh, all, uh, Robert Haldane at the head of a revival, so on and so forth. So all, all kinds of wonderful things as we think about uh, the book of Romans and the way that God uses it in history. There's a third uh, uh, reason for studying the book of Romans, and it's a theological reason. When you think about theology, uh, you think about, well, you think about uh, it in just as one of the theological disciplines. For instance, when you think about the New Testament or the Old Testament, you think about the method of exegesis, right? How do we understand? How do we read out of this text what is in it? When you think about biblical theology, what do you think about? You think about history, the method of historical unfolding, historical progress. When you think about systematic theology, you think about logic. You think about 
the arrangement of ideas in a logical order as they come from the scriptures. And so when you think about systematic theology, you think about, you can distill it into one question. What does the Bible say about X? That is a quintessential theological question. So you can ask yourself, what does the Bible say about sin? And when you ask that question, what you're asking is not a historical question. In other words, how does the Bible reveal the doctrine of sin over time? But you're asking, what does it say about sin? What does it say about its spread? What does it say about its, uh, what does it say about its, um, you know, hmm? its nature? What does it say about it? And that's a theological question. So what does the Bible say about X? Now, when we turn to the book of Romans, we can ask this question. What does Romans or the Bible say about <laughs> sin, the law, justification, imputation, sanctification, union with Christ, election, civil government, and on and on and on? Those questions, at least from this epistle standpoint, are answered for us. So all of these things, uh, and this is in part where I say that, that this epistle is such heavy theology. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's good theology. It's theology we all ought to uh, be interested in uh, studying, but um, it's still theology nonetheless. Now, I want to say a couple of things. One, just briefly, but first of all, up until the time of F.C. Bauer, which is the mid-19th century, up until that time, Romans was thought of in just the way I'm talking about it, a theological compendium. A theolo uh, it was a theological book. And in fact, uh, Philip Melanchthon, who was uh, a good friend of Martin Luther, called it a religious compendium, the Christian religious compendium, or a theological book. Um, this was the way Romans was understood up until uh, the 19th century or the 1800s when F.C. Bauer was living. Um, Anders Nygren, 1945, still calls it in his commentary on Romans a compendium of the Christian religion. Um, what changed? What changed? Well, I'll tell you what changed, and I'm not going to spend hardly any time here at all. But what changed is this. What changed is higher critical method came into the study of the New Testament. And when higher critical method came into the study of the New Testament, uh, the idea of it being a theological text or a dogmatic text was pushed out. And what, and what came to, to, to um, settle on the book studies is its historical context, uh, why was it written. Uh, and once that started to happen, the book started to be treated like, well, like a book that you could pull apart, a book that you could say, well, because of this, it only mattered in the first century. It didn't really matter in other centuries. And did it really happen in the first century to begin with? What happened? What's part of the original book? Is... For instance, are, are, how about chapter 16? Is that really there? Or what about chapters 14 and 15? Were they late editions? Or are they part of the original book? All of that kind of questioning started to enter into the study of the book of Romans. And when it did, 
The idea that it's a theological compendium gets pushed out, and that kind of thing only remains in circles like us today. Um, when you go outside of our circles, um, the idea of higher critical work is, uh, is really ripe um, in those circles. And so they're not talking about Romans like we are talking about Romans or like we're going to talk about Romans as a theological text that answers a lot of theological questions. So, well, um, let me, uh, before I say something about the background of the book, anything that you want to talk about in terms of like those reasons that I've given, you want to add some others or talk about these? So what you're saying though, Jeff, is when it got into this higher critical thinking, it was questioning Romans theology or, or it being a foundational theology well, in, in one sense, there, there are a number of things that you have to consider. For instance, you ever, you ever hear anybody talk about Lucan theology or Pauline theology? Pauline. You know, those kinds of things. Well, this is, this is a, a product of that same period. And that same period, that period of higher, critica, higher criticism produced what's called Biblical theology. Now, biblical theology is a good word, and we, we trust names connected to biblical theology, but biblical theology actually has some roots in higher, criti- higher criticism or liberal theology. Um, and so, for instance, when it comes out of liberal theology, the idea that, well, Luke had his own theology, and it may be different from Paul's theology. Okay? And there's a Johannine theology, and so on and so forth. And, and so, for instance, let me, give you a, let me give you a for instance. Take Paul's theology. There might be an early Pauline theology and a late Pauline theology. So, for instance, some might interpret Philippians chapter 2 as being what? A pre-existent Christology. In other words, Christ was pre-existent before he arrived on earth. Well, we'd say, yeah. And then others would say, well, yes, but in Paul, we also detect a strain of adoptionism. And so in adoptionism, Christ wasn't preexistent, but the man Jesus was adopted to be the son of God and to fulfill his task on earth. And, and some would say, see, in Pauline theology, you actually have two streams. You have this stream, you have this stream. So my point is that... Um, that in, in higher criticism, what you have is you have a number of things at work. You have the, this, this kind of biblical theology which says, well, let's, let, let's, let's see if we can pull this apart and pull this apart. So automatically, when you have that, Romans, for instance, Romans 1, verse 3, he was declared to be the Son of God. Somebody's going to say, that happens to be the strain of theology that is adoption in nature. This is, um, so all of a sudden, now we're talking about things like that. So here's, here, this is the pulling apart and sort of dicing it up. And, but dicing it up according to a liberal theology that informs this higher critical method. And uh, at, the, at root, the Bible's not, you remember the four things that I mentioned earlier? The Bible's not necessarily those things, right? The Bible becomes a... I mean, for many in liberal theology at that time, the Bible was, a, uh, was basically the diary of Christian experience, right? 
um, wasn't an infallible, inerrant word of God. It was, this is, this is basically the existential experience of early Christians for us. But it's not an authoritative experience. It was their experience, and that's how they described it. We might describe it differently. We might describe it differently. Yeah. So you get, you get a guy like Boltmann who comes along, and Boltmann says, Boltmann says, um, here's the problem. The liberals are wrong and the conservatives are wrong. And he said, and why are the conservatives wrong? Well, the conservatives are wrong because, for instance, they want to dogmatize things like miracles. Like, okay, fine. A miracle is a way that the early Christians expressed their belief, but we shouldn't dogmatize that. But the liberals are wrong because they want to cut out all the miracles. And, and why is that a problem? Well, that's a problem because then we're not really going to know how those early Christians expressed their belief. So we, we have to keep the miracles in order to understand the primitive way in which our early Christian ancestors expressed their belief. But we should not dogmatize it like the conservatives want to do. Like if you don't believe in the virgin birth, all of a sudden you're out. No, 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 no. And so on. But you see, that's this liberal theology at work and the way in which you pull apart the scriptures and so on and so forth. Yeah, Don. You see that happening today. Remember the federal vision? Um, N.T. Wright? I do, sure. Yeah, yeah. He yeah, yeah, says yeah. that, well, uh, you know, Christians, both Catholics and Protestants, have gotten it wrong over yeah. the centuries. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It, it, was, uh, it was not until N.T. Wright came along and saved us from a misunderstanding. Right, right. Yeah. Able to understand yeah. the scriptures. It wasn't talking about justification. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it, what Wright says is justification is not telling us how to be saved, right? Yeah. He's ta- justification talks to us about the church. It talks to us about ecclesiology. It doesn't talk to us about soteriology, how to be saved. So, so, um, so that's what that's why this letter. Now we move into this background. Why? Why the letter to the Romans to begin with? Well, I want you to think about it like this. Let's think about the letter for just a second. Um, Let's think about chapters 1 through 4. Chapters 1 through 4 deal with justification. Well, deal with justification and sin. Okay? Chapters 5 through 8 we might say deal with sanctification and perseverance. And chapters 9 through 11 deal with, we might say, predestination. But there's a Jew-Gentile thing going on here in these chapters. And then in chapter 12, you, uh, through 13, you get things like one another's, you get like things like, uh, I'll say, Christian gifts and life and government, which I think fits under that. And then in 14 through 15, you get uh, adiaphora issues. You know, uh, you, drink, you drink this or you eat that, uh, and I don't. Uh, what about that? And this is, again, Jew and Gentile stuff. And then in chapter 16, you have the greetings. Now, I want you to think about that just for a minute. Think about how there are 16 chapters in the book of Romans. 
five of them are taken up with Jew and Gentile problems. Why is that? Well, I'll tell you why that is. Because the church had gone through a difficult time. Emperor Claudius was fit to be tied because the Jews and this particular sect of Judaism called Christianity, and Christos was their head, were constantly making disturbances in the empire, in Rome. So he decides, I'm going to banish a large part of them. So he banishes the Jews, but he's really banishing Jews and Christians because at this time, at this time, the Jews and the Christians appear to be together. In fact, it's that way until you get to Acts, 6, uh, Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council. When you, when you look at early uh, parts of the book of Acts, where are the Christians going? They're going up to the temple to pray. Why? Because they see themselves as Jews who have had the Messiah come. I mean, it would be the natural, the most natural thing in the world for them to go to the temple. They see themselves as Jews who understand the Messiah has come. The Old Testament predictions have come true. And so they're saying to the Jews, look, the Messiah has come. And, and the Jews are saying, forget you, you're not of us. And Claudius says, no, 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 forget all of you. And he expels them. Probably uh, they are... I think that if you go to 1 Peter and look at those exiles that are dispersed to those five, five parts of the outermost areas of the empire, um, I think that you find those are the Claudian exiles. Claudius really populates more than any other emperor, uh, populates those areas, and uh, I think those are the Claudian exiles. But after five years, uh, they're able to return. So the Claudian exile happens about 48, 49, somewhere in that time. They're able to return five years later. And probably Romans is written about 55. And when they return, when these exiles return, uh, they find the church in Rome to be uh, pretty much Gentile in nature. Uh, the, the Jewish influence has in some measure departed, and when they return, now you have Jew-Gentile relationships that need to be navigated. Hence, you have chapters 9, 10, and 11, where Paul really talks about, you know, uh, those, uh, you know, Jews that were uh, cut off, and those Gentiles who were grafted in, and what does that mean for you? Uh, now you have issues of what about eating meat sacrificed to idols? Uh, this is the same kind of thing that came up in Acts 15. Uh, you know, you have Jewish people who are very sensitive about that. You have Gentiles who aren't. Uh, what, what about that relationship? How should we understand that? How should we live with one another when such a practical issue divides us? And so you have five chapters of the book of Romans dealing with Jew-Gentile relationships. <clears throat> and... Uh, and so I, I think when you, when you look at the letter as a whole, you need to take that into account. Now, I think one of the things that Paul's doing is, Paul's saying, look, you guys need to get along. Why? Because 
And I should say this also, when you, when you look at the last chapters, you can, you can detect maybe five house churches at the end of the Romans. Um, uh, depends on how you count the references, but there, there are possibly up to five different house churches in Rome. Now, what does Paul want to do? Paul wants to use them as a point of departure to go to Spain. And so I think what he's doing is he's saying, look, you guys got to be a stable base for me. If you're not a stable base for me, then I'm going to have trouble because, because it's a long way to Spain. Uh, and so uh, that's what he talks about in the end of the book. He says, I, I'm going to come and visit you on my way to Spain and uh, love to be able to come to you and impart some gift to you. Love for this to be a great meeting and not a difficult one. That sort of, that sort of thing. So why the book of Romans? Well, um, these particular issues. But can I also say this? When you think about these five chapters, and we say these are Jewish issues. Um, brothers, what was Acts 15 all about at the Jerusalem Council? It was about justification. And so when you, when you open up the first four chapters of the book of Romans, this is a Jew-Gentile issue right here. This book has Jew-Gentile relationships written all over it. And, and I think that we shouldn't forget that. Uh, it's important for us to think in that way when we, when we open up this book. Okay? All right. Any, any questions on that before... Yeah. You, you misses the whole the whole connection. Misses the whole connection. And he's a famous a famous theologian. Yep. And and the problem and, and I think that's why when uh, that's why for instance that's why it's criticized uh, as being described as a why it's nine through eleven here? Right. I mean I, I don't remember who the guy was, but famous preacher. Um, and I think his books are published, but a series of books are published on this. But when he got to 9, 10, and 11, just dropped it. Yep. Didn't preach on it at all. Not, not important. Yep, not important. So, um, yeah. So I, I think we have to be very careful. I do think it's a theological text, rich and so on. But I think that if we're responsible and we look at Romans in light of the biblical theology of the unfolding plan of God... Uh, for instance, in the book of Acts, then we begin to understand that this is this is a this this letter is a it's it's a live issue in the church in the first century. Yeah. yeah. He also didn't since he didn't found a, the church in Rome. He also had to introduce himself. To yeah. That. Yeah. What is it that I teach? Who am I? Yep. Absolutely. And and think about that. I, I mean, when you. When you, when you think about that, he's not shy about it, is he? No. <laughs> let, me, let me start off with, you know, let me start off with, uh, I mean, it, let me just say it now, and we'll, we'll get to it later, but here's the, so, you know, these Jews come back, and they're all bent out of shape at, at, when they look at the life of the church, and so Paul immediately begins hammering on the Gentiles, and the Jews are going, you tell them! 
And then by the time chapter 2 turns around, he looks at the Jews and he says, now let me tell you something. And they're going, what? What are you talking about for? And the Gentiles, this is hilarious, the Gentiles are going, yeah, because they had the law. And Paul turns back around and says, no, 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 you had the law too. And later in chapter 2, it was written on your heart. And, and then by chapter 3, he's going, now, you're, now you all need to sit down and shut up, you know? <laughs> Uh, so uh, he really, uh, it's, it's just a great, it's a great letter. Uh, but, but it has a, a historical context that I think we need to really pay attention to. Yeah. yeah. But somehow uh, in this early introduction, obviously not today, would you talk more about offering my best? Because I think that's really crept into the culture of, you know, modern day Christianity that, that we hear, you know, well, just do your best. That's you know, that's all God asks you is to do your best. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, and that, and that Martin Luther wasn't satisfied with that, right? That troubled him. Yeah. Um, from what you said earlier. Right? Yeah. So, so basically, here's here's the idea. The idea is that God creates, and he and he creates Adam in the context of creation. And uh, in that, you know, um, I think. How That's about, what I thought for another. But that, how, about, how about how about when we? I planned on saying more. Do you talk about that? That's yeah. Because I think that's a big issue today. Is I do too. It's like leaves the door open to. Yeah, but you still have to do your very best. It's a big issue if you're Lutheran. The Reformation is a big issue here, because if you're talking about self-salvation, if you have to do your best. Yeah. Right. Right. Because uh, your best states. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and when you think about that time, you think about, you can understand, right? Do your best, but there's, you know, you, a guy like Martin Luther comes along and he says, okay, well, what is my best? Everybody else has been happy with just that answer, but I'm, I'm suffering as a result of this. What if I'm one sin short of doing my best, right? Well, but isn't it the Sermon on the Mount, too? You know, Moses said to you, don't commit murder. But I tell you, if you hate your brother, you've already murdered him. Yeah. It's like, whoa, wait a minute now. I, I'm a good guy. I don't murder people. See, well, part, of, part of the issue here, too, is, and, I, and I'll just say this in one. Part of the issue is the issue between covenant and testament. And Martin Luther used to understand, once understood early in his day, in fact, when he wrote the book of Romans, when he wrote the commentary of Romans, um, understood covenant as being the best descriptor between our relationship with God. And why is that? Well, because, because God has uh, things that he brings to the table, and man has things he must bring to the table. And we'll talk, we'll talk more about this in a minute. But when, when Luther came to this realization, he said, no, 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 it's a testament. Because in a testament, when, when the testator dies, everything is left to me. And there is no obligation on my part to do anything. And that's why some, some Lutheran theology characterizes sanctification as getting used to our justification. So, so you're saying when Jesus dies... Yeah. He gives us the whole estate. Yeah. We inherit everything. Yeah. That's right. So there's a, there's a huge shift in Luther's thinking between covenant and testament. 
And so, you know, the question then becomes, when you get to chapter 5 through 8, especially chapters chapter 6 and 7, right, the question then becomes, is there an obligation on my part? And what is that obligation? What does it mean? What does sanctification mean? So, so we'll talk about those things and... But uh, any, any last-minute questions? Because next time, apparently, we'll get to the text. <laughs> I, did, I so did not want to prove Sig right on this. But, um, hey, Jeff, this is good stuff, man. Don't yeah. go fast. Uh-huh. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Just one comment. I, I used to do a lot with Luther. Stout had said to him, he came very close to saying the gospel to him. He said, seek your salvation in the wounds of Christ. Yeah. Pointed him to the cross. Yeah. Now, neither neither of the two of them fully understood that. Right. Right. Right at that point, but it was awful close. But you know, isn't it? You if you've done a lot on Luther, they they Luther and von Staupitz kept up a relationship long after Absolutely. the break. He was a doctor father. I mean, he was a real father to Luther. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of a an, an interesting thing. Yeah. So. Uh, What's your favorite commentary? We'll get, if you've done a lot with Luther, tell us, give us the, give us the one we ought to read. On, on, the, on, on Romans? On Luther. Oh, on Luther. Let me think about that. <laughs> you think about that. We'll start, we'll start with that question when we come back the next time. John Calvin's commentary on Luther. I'm joking. It's a joke, Joe. I was processing. I had a, you thought you wrote one and you missed it. I was processing. I had. Oh, okay. yeah. I think the right way to study Luther is to read his commentary on Galatians. Oh, okay. He okay. called it his called it his his wife. He named he named his his Katie. And huh. that that's a I, every time I taught that course on Luther, some students got converted. Wow. Listening, they said it went from their head to their heart. Wow. Mm. So you taught a course on Luther at the seminary? Yeah, every year. Oh, that's great. That's great. Did Ted Wood benefit from that? Yep. Okay. Oh, man. You have to. I don't remember that he was in the class or not, but I was teaching it while he was there. Oh, man. I better dot my eyes and cross my teeth. All right. Well. It's still in print, it's just right. Oh, yeah. There's a somewhat reduced version of it. Which is probably the, right. I mean, the, the, the big one is he's very repetitive. Kriegel does yeah, does this yeah. smaller the, the version. The smaller one is enough. Yeah. Yeah. Kriegel, yeah. Kriegel yeah. published It's a very moving book. I mean, you just can't help but be touched in your heart deep down inside. You know, I, I was just uh, I, I was just going through his his uh, volume forty two on his devotional works. I think it's forty two or forty three. Yeah. They're both devotional, but um, found in there the sayings that comforted Luther. And here they were sayings that that they that he was saying in this castle. And after he, even after his death, they went to this castle and they discovered in his particular room. His physician went in and saw in his room all these sayings that Luther had written down on the wall. And uh, apparently he would go in and write this stuff down and then look at it and, yeah. Uh, He must have been quite a guy, you know what I mean? Katie must have been forever after him sort of wiping the walls down, you know what I mean? But you mean the castle when he was hiding from the the, the people that wanted to kill him? Yeah, yeah. 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 
translating the scripture. Yeah. So how do you spell Kregel? K-R-E-G-E-L-K-R-E. Thank you. Okay, let's pray and I'll let you guys go here. Father, thank you for this day, for the time you've given, and thank you for the love of Christ shed abroad in our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for the book of Romans, for the richness of it. And Father, as we enter into the study of it, we pray that you'll work in us mightily. It may be a book we, we know well. It may be a book that we've read numerous times, and yet your word is so deep and so rich. We know that your spirit taking it up in our lives will do things in us that will just be glorious. So we anticipate those, look forward to them, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 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 At 26, oh, look, it's still recording.